Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. We've got no guests this week, so there's more space for our lovely panellists. Let's meet them. Commentator Alexandrea is here. Hi, Alex. Hello, Dorian. Um, public support predictably swept Ukraine to victory at Eurovision over the weekend. But more surprisingly, the UK's entry, Sam Ryder, came in second after years of failure, culminated in Nulpois last year. Does this prove that Europe doesn't actually hate us as a nation after all, and they were just waiting for a good song? It's a lovely song, and it's a kind of perfect result, isn't it? Like, it's a massive hug to both UK and Ukraine which are ailing for different reasons at the moment. Um, Germany and France gave us 12 points each, as did Belgium. But for, um, but for years, I was convinced, you know, just looking at the evidence, that the that, people just, just didn't like us. And, you know, the, the quality of the song was not the deciding factor. But suddenly... So I have a theory. I think the UK does well whenever it takes the competition seriously on its terms. So it's neither po-faced and uh, superior to it, nor actively taking the piss. And whenever they've done that, whenever they've sent a genuinely good um, people of the world unite poppy Eurotune and met the competition head on, they've done quite well. Uh, well, traditionally, the winner hosts the following year's competition, but the second place country can take it on if that's not possible. Mm. Uh, apparently, the UK did this back in the 50s because uh, the Netherlands was too cheap to host it. Uh, <laughs> despite optimistic noises about a free Ukraine in 2023, are you expecting um, there to be a UK tournament next year? Yeah, I'm afraid I am because, I mean, there's nothing I hope for more than next year Eurovision being hosted in a free and prosperous Ukraine. But it strikes me as the sort of logistical exercise that you can't say I can host it a month before or even six months yeah. before. It, it seems to me that preparations for next year start really the day after the winner is announced. And so I think a decision will have to be made probably in the next month on whether Ukraine can host it or not. And I don't think they're in a position at the moment. The only time I've been to Kiev. Uh, was for Eurovision 2005. So mm. Ukraine and Eurovision are, are wedded in my brain. Wonderful. Roz Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz. Hello, Dorian. So it's been a week since Keir Starmer offered to resign if charged for Beergate. Still a bad word. Uh, the new statesman took the opportunity to stick the boot in, saying that Britain needs and deserves more than a cautious technocratic Labour Prime Minister. Um, does the lack of outrage about this reveal that Starmer has no tribe of loyalists to defend him and that a lot of people like him, but, but nobody loves him? I mean, apart from, obviously, members of his family. No, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. I don't think there's any real clamour to remove him in the Labour Party at the moment. But what it does mean is that Labour can imagine a future without Starmer. 
and uh, starting to talk about that privately. And that's actually a good thing. If you contrast it with the Tories, who cannot imagine a future without Boris Johnson, partly because Johnson has promoted so many mediocrities that there is no one senior enough in the party who is seen as strong enough and capable enough to take over from him, which, of course, is exactly what he wants. But Starmer has promoted talented people who could conceivably do his job. That's actually a sign of strength. But I don't think that there is that clamour in the party at the moment. There's just no appetite for a leadership contest until it has to happen. Well, the Labour left also just couldn't, they couldn't imagine a future without Corbyn, which is why they were floating silly ideas like Laura Pidcock. And that was a real problem because the, even though many people on the left realised that Corbyn had, had flaws, they were just like, well, if he goes, we go. And I suppose if you're talking, you know, broadly, I don't want to say the right, I don't want to say the centre, but just I suppose the kind of the majority of the PLP from the Blairites through to the soft left, I don't think they're that. They're not just like, oh, well, our whole project fails without without yeah. care. And that's a good thing. That's quite healthy for a party. Yeah. Ian Dunt is a columnist of the Eye. Hi, Ian. Hello. We've got an exciting announcement this week. Uh, yes. Ian and I are launching a brand new podcast called Origin Story, and the first six-episode season begins this week. Uh, Ian, promote us. Oh, that's fucking... There's a dreadful way to start. <laughs> By the way, this is what it's like on the fucking podcast as well. It's Most of the time, it's just Dorian staring at me. Going, Ian, explain! You should just give me an advertising blurb to read. I'm really good Dude, at it. We just had to read the advert stuff, and I was fucking it up like More you would not believe. So after that, I was like, can you just bring Alex in here to make it sound sexy? Like, this is what we need. Um, right, yeah, no, origin story. Excellent. It's a very exciting new podcast by two board hosts. Um where they look at the origins of words that are sort of floating around the ether in politics. And I think this came, for me, this came, I think, when I spent two years writing about liberalism, right? Now, once you have some idea of what liberalism is, you then spend the rest of your time noticing that pretty much every usage of it on Twitter or in articles or in books is wrong. Yeah. Where you're just like, all you mean is just stuff I don't like, it's whether like, it's left it's or like right. Or... It's, like, it's like me with Orwellian. I was like, that's not Orwellian. Stop saying things are Orwellian. So in fact, yeah, the origin story of our origin story podcast yeah. is that we both wrote books on words that are badly, badly misused. And so now we sat here and we've gone through the kind of words that are catastrophically and very systematically misused neoliberalism, centrism. I'm glad you think neoliberalism. Yeah, we're not. That was that research was fucking terrible. It was such pain. In fact, Dorian was one that looked most scarred by that research. He really did look traumatized by it. Yeah, took it seriously. Yeah, and uh, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you say that in a pointed way as if I was just flying my way through. Yeah. Anyway, you know, and that's so we tell the story. It's a story of ideas, right? So we spend half of our time, you know, we've got French Revolution, we've got, you know, post post Second World War. We, we're going through the sort of centuries and trying to disentangle, you know, what the meaning, how you can actually legitimately use these words. And hopefully by doing it, maybe just like help to create like a political debate that's about more light than heat. And there's some really good stories. Uh, Mm. We're doing like McCarthyism. We're doing conspiracy theories. There's sort of anecdotes and analysis. And then, yeah, hoping to just sort of clarify the history of these words so that you can kind of use them in a a way that has some bearing (laughs) to their meaning. (laughs) We also did Woke, which involved me having to sit and read all of Piers Morgan's book. No, that's that I'm sucked. so sorry for you. Exactly. And if people also feel sorry for me listening to this, listen to the fucking podcast, because <laughs> I didn't do that for nothing, people. That hurt me. It wasn't for his own health. <laughs> 
This week on the show, we talk about the cost of living crisis and why the Tories are so very tone deaf about it. Plus, Liz Truss announces she's scrapping specific and limited parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Is this just another threat or the first shot in a trade war with the EU and possibly a constitutional crisis to boot? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, as a landmark case finds that a man was a victim of sex-related harassment due to his baldness, we are unusually well-placed to talk about a surprising new category of identity politics. That's after a quick reminder from Alex. Suns out, guns out. Political big guns, that is. You've got less than a month to secure your tickets for our next live show at the Old Market Theatre in Hove, near Brighton, on Wednesday the 8th of June. All four of us will be there, and we've got a special guest joining us too. We'll be joined by friend of the podcast, Raphael Baer, Guardian columnist and leader writer, and also formerly the paper's Russia correspondent. Tickets are on sale now at theoldmarket.com. And Patreon supporters have a special discount for all live shows. Get yours now and we'll see you there. First this week, the cost of living crisis mounts. Inflation stands at 9%, is expected to exceed 10% when the energy price cap is raised yet again in October. It's already the worst in 40 years. Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey warns of apocalyptic food prices due to the invasion of Ukraine. The charity Action for Children reports that poorer families are skipping meals, wearing coats indoors and living with the lights off. While the caterer Bid Food predicts that schools will have to serve smaller portions or use cheaper ingredients unless the government steps in. And 55% of people in a YouGov poll said that inflation had made their health worse. But don't worry, Tory MPs are lining up to offer compassionate advice such as work harder, apply for better jobs, buy own brand or live on 30p meals. They've got this. Uh, Roz. Tory MP Lee Anderson has clashed with food writer and campaigner Jack Monroe after telling food bank users what they really need to do is learn to b- budget and cook better. Is this a gaffe or is it a calculated appeal to Tory voters who just hate poor people? I'm not sure that all Tory voters hate poor people. I mean, some I mean, Tory voters The Tory voters who people. do yeah, hate poor people. Yeah. I mean, Typical, I was... reasonable Roz strikes again. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that was more of a grammatical error on my part. I'm saying the subset of Tory voters who hate yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just, you know, standing up for moderation in my own tedious way. I, th- I think it's a generation. It's a generalisation, though. Tory voters do regret the existence of poor people. I mean, they're they're kind of of the opinion, and this is at the crux of it, that if the state got out of the way a bit more, these poor people could pull themselves up by their bootstraps and and make it good. And you see this go back. It goes back a long, long, long way to Burke's little platoons. But it, you saw it. 40 years ago when you had Tebbit's speech to a Tory party conference and it's people claim there that he said, told people to get on their bike. He didn't actually do that. What he said was, I grew up in the 30s with an unemployed father. He did not riot. He got on his bike and looked for work. And that sums up the view that, you know, if the state only got out of your way, as opposed to, as they would see it, bailing you out when you can't pay your electricity and gas bill, then you could pull yourself up. Now, you know, and that's what leads to people like Lee Anderson saying that if your current job isn't paying enough, you should, you know, get a better one or why not get two or get three if you can, if you can fit it in. The answer lies with the individual, not the state. And that is why they are so reluctant to, as they say, see it, bail people out. And the fact that unemployment as well is still so very low, it's actually lower than the number of vacancies in the current job market, though I don't think that will persist for many more months. Mm. That lends weight in their minds to this this urgency to make sure that people go out and get those jobs and do not rely on the state. 
It's very, it's very much, it, it's the individualism of it, isn't it? It's just like, if you're rich, it's all you. And if it's poor, it's all you. And there's no such thing as sort of systemic or structural uh, factors. No, I mean, there are conservatives now who are um, departing from the line. I mean, I don't know if Roy Stewart, for example, still considers himself a conservative. He probably does, although not one of Boris Johnson's conservatives. He said this week that the thing that really helped people poor people was cash, was cold, hard cash and money. And other ways of kind mm. of trying to help them didn't work as well as just giving them money. That is very much a departure from the conventional Tory thinking. Mm. Well, meanwhile, you've got, you've got people like Bernard Jenkins, Stephen Crabb and Whig model Michael Fabricant um, all calling for an increase in benefits. So is the PCP, do you think, divided between your, your Fabricants and your, and your Andersons? Like how many of these kind of why not help poor people Tories are there enough to make a difference no i think i think it's very easy to cling to the anderson line in the abstract that's it when you actually go and visit a food bank as michael fabricant did it becomes a lot more difficult to keep up the fiction that people don't need any state help. And so you say, oh, well, in this instance, yeah, they do. I'll make this exception. It's not something that survives exposure to reality. But in the abstract, for Conservatives, it's very appealing. Now, obviously, Lee, Lee Anderson, while definitely not helping, um, is not posh. Um, but people like Sunak, Zahawi and Mog are uh, mm. very wealthy indeed. Is it always going to be a, an optics problem for this particular Tory front bench? You know, if, when, if poverty, you know, widespread poverty is in the headlines, it's like you really don't want Mog on the air. Yeah, I mean, I don't think rich people are always incapable of em empathy by any means, but I do think... Oh, here she goes. I do think... <laughs> <laughs> Connote the butt. I, I mean, you know, there are great examples in this world of philanthropists who are doing good, let's face it. Yeah. But great wealth does give you a moral obligation to at least interest yourself in the poor. And that's something that actually the Conservatives used to be very keen on in their one nation incarnation, which is pretty much dead now. It's what you might call the sort of Downton Abbey model. Uh, you, you, you employ the poor people. You look out for them. But you know that they're you know, not doing so well. You recognise them. And the better among Conservatives know that they can make people's lives better by their individual actions, even if they don't believe the state can do it. That, for example, is what the Ukrainian refugee scheme comes out of. It very much comes from this view that individuals can do better at the state at being generous at being kind now there are massive problems with that scheme which are being ex which expose some of the fallacies of that view but that's what they believe it comes back again to burke's little platoons well could not rishi sunak's family be true to, to their sort of individualistic beliefs and personally fund a benefit increase well yes i'm sure, they, me, could, but, uh, I'm but sure as, they could cover it as we know what rishi sunak actually does with his money is give fuck off big donations to his old uh, private school Sorry, still, still not over that. As, real, a, as a recipient of charity. The real victim. <laughs> uh, Ian, Andrew Bailey says the Bank of England could not have predicted the invasion of Ukraine, which is the main driver of inflation, which seems fair enough. Uh, but are there contributing factors that they could have seen coming and did not? 
Well, they did. I mean, they were talking about it. Yeah, I mean, it's not just about the invasion of Ukraine, right? It's also, we've talked about this before, but um, I mean, it's sort of worth mentioning some of the sort of factors that are going into it. I mean, one of them is that during the pandemic, it, it did really messed up things to people's spending habits. So, you know, you have all these families with a budget that they would have used on going out for Pizza Hut or whatever mm. the hell. Other places are available, but you should probably just go to Pizza Hut. Pizza Hut. Pizza Hut's quite nice. Yeah, their, their stuffed crust has got garlic in it. It's, it's a very good stuffed no, crust. Stop it. They have a new crust. one with... Stop it. Like it's like a, a loaf of uh, bread. <laughs> with loads of cheese and no no I mean there's no point having pizza without stuff wrong with it but it's not a pizza Ian's a man of the people it's not just that I mean you just want a gooey but you've got to have the right amount of garlic we're back into Rito's Asanio territory here (laughs) no no this is completely legitimate and very very important actually much more important than anything else I'm about to say so they had that money usually it would have gone to Pizza Hut maybe Pizza Express maybe Domino's but it's got to go somewhere right you can't go to those places so you end up spending it on white goods it's just like durable good. So you're looking around, you're locked in your house, you're like, oh, well, actually, sofa's a bit natty. I, I have to spend every waking second looking at the sofa, so I'll get a sofa. And that's why price, you know, you suddenly, it's been very, very hard. For instance, if you've been trying to get a PlayStation 5 over the last year and a half, you will realize that's a very, very difficult mm-hmm. thing to do because there's a huge amount of demand there was for, mm-hmm. for durable goods. At the same time, there was like a real constraint in supply, especially because in places like China, you're getting you know, hit by lockdowns and lockdowns that's still happening now. They're getting hit by COVID very hard. And then, of course, in our case, we got rid of a shitload of labor in the form of European people who went home during the, during the pandemic. And then we left. We didn't extend the amount of time that we had. So there were labor shortages. And typically speaking, when that happens, you're going to be paying more for the labor. So loads of factors went in that weren't just Ukraine. It was just like it was all primed. And we were all talking about it, right? You know, it was a thing that was talked about. It was just primed. And then Ukraine comes and it just detonates the whole thing. So did the Bank of England, why did therefore the Bank of England not do anything? His argument here is that, well, we couldn't have predicted the war Ergo, we couldn't have done anything. Well, I think one of the problems that the Bank of England has is that it doesn't have that many levers that it can pull for external factors like this. It's not internal to the market, apart from the the Brexit part, which is kind of out of their control. And the one that they do have, interest rates, are quite a painful response to this sort of thing, as we're going to find out. You know, you're literally kind of killing demand, right? And like killing demand is a painful thing to do. And it's a very painful thing to do when you're in the scenario that we're in, Mm. just that our economy is already suffering and looks like it could go into recession. So you're kind of worsening recession. You're you're saying to yourself, well, you know, controlling inflation matters more than people's jobs. So that is a very painful decision to have to make. And you can understand why they were reticent to start doing it. Do you think we will have a recession then? Yeah, I think that's extremely likely. If the war is the key factor, though, in the rising oil, gas and grain prices, which are the main drivers, does that mean that inflation could be short lived? Or once this sort of cycle of increasing prices and wages sort of starts, it doesn't just kind of like drop down as soon as, you know, grain prices get back to normal? Because the weird thing is it doesn't, it, it, to a certain extent, it's responsive towards the objective reality of the world. And yet there is another inflationary pressure, which is an internal, subjective, psychological assessment of the world in in the shape of our expectations in wages. And that's the, I mean, when you look at, you know, back in the sort of 60s, when people would look at the Phillips curve, which would look at sort of, you know, economic growth and, and inflation, one of the things that they would worry about is, okay, but what happens when the worker expects that degree of inflation and starts assuming that you'd have that much more in wages, but yeah. it doesn't necessarily anymore correspond to the objective circumstances of the economy. And that's the that's kind of the thing that scares them now, is it's just people's expectation takes over what you'd have a year, two years at very high rates before people are like, well, I obviously have to be getting this degree of pay rise all the time if I'm going to be able to keep float. And once that happens, the expectation becomes something that's real 
and impacting on the actual objective world, even though it's rooted in a, in a subjective psychological experience. And one thing that could be done to help people um, is a windfall tax on the energy companies. And none of your follow-up questions is going to be about stuffed crust pizza, because I can't... I feel like we're really losing our way. I think we covered it. He had one, but he crossed it out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there's not going to be a windfall tax on Pizza Hut. But there is Labour uh, pushed a motion for windfall tax on the engine companies who are doing very well indeed. Um, It was defeated and not a single Tory MP voted for it. Is this just simply parliamentary bollocks where no Tory wants to vote for a Labour idea, but that they might end up bringing it up themselves and going, look at this brilliant idea that we've had? Yeah, but then it's it's kind of parliamentary bollocks for Labour to be putting it forward. In the, the you know its primary function is moral communication, right? It's to say, look, the baddies. We take the money from the baddies and we give it to the goodies. Doesn't really matter that it doesn't solve the problem in and of itself. That's why the policy was formulated. They should do it. It's a good idea. But let's not get into a game of pretending that it's going to fucking you know sort everything out because it absolutely will not. Um, Alex, do MPs and indeed the public at large realise that that being poor is actually quite expensive mm. because when you're living day to day there's there's all these savings that you you can't make they don't and um and that's why even visiting a food bank i mean you're basically a tourist in a strange land um you know the the going to the local shop twice a week costs a lot more than going to a big drive drive to supermarket mm. once a month um, small packages of things cost mm. more. I'll give you a solid example. So w- I was homeless for just over a year, and I used to have to shower at King's Cross Station, and that cost £3.50 a pop. It's five quid a pop now, by the way, to use the public showers. And on a weekly basis, I would also save, like, my 20p coins and drag a little suitcase to a laundrette um, once a week to wash all my clothes because I had a job. I was working, and so I had to keep up this appearance of someone vaguely functional. And I sat down and calculated at one point that I had spent over two grand on this basic hygiene during my time of homelessness, which would have been, you know, more than enough to cover, like, a deposit and a a first month's rent for a flat. But I never had it all in one go. Mm. And so that kept going. It, It kind of drags you underwater and keeps you there until you can't breathe. And the other, the other effect that, you know, people who do those stupid programs where they go, oh, I'm going to live for a week on X amount, and they go, gosh, it's very hard, but it's just about doable. They never start from a position of poverty. You know, they never start from a position of empty cupboards and uh, shoes with holes in them and uh, an empty larder. They start from a position where they ha- just have to sustain it for a week, and yeah. they know when the end is coming. The psychological effect of not knowing when the end is coming, thinking that this will go on forever and, if anything, get worse, is immense. And, and the, the extent to which a visit to the dentist can knock your finances like out of orbit for an, an entire year, people just don't appreciate that. Or a birthday, you know. How is the rest of Europe faring um, with similar uh, they're not exactly the same pressures. Like countries like Germany, for example, had much greater reliance on Russian fossil fuels. You mm. expect them to be hit by uh, the Ukraine situation. Well, they are, look, they are hit. I mean, we could sit here and do a sort of boring checklist of 
which country is responding in a slightly more <laughs> austerity way or a Keynesian way. There's a mixture of there's a mixture of responses out there. I think from what I've seen in my research that the majority of them are better at targeting the money to like the poorest um, decile of people that really do need it than the UK has been. Um, but the point is that they have also less political headroom to ignore it, I think, because people in Europe are a little bit more pugnacious. That's my view. Remember the Gilets jaunes? Yeah. It ain't going to take much for the Gilets jaunes to take back to the streets of Paris. Seriously, tell Greeks or Spaniards... You know, if the if their energy bill has just gone up sixty percent, why don't you buy value brands? They will be outside your. I'm trying to imagine Emmanuel Macron. Yeah, we're recommending like noodle recipes. Yeah, you just dig the noodles, you boil the kettle. <laughs> He's a very cheap. It just it just wouldn't happen because people wouldn't put up with it. But we do. Can you do your French accent a bit more? Is yeah, that a specific Macron impersonation you, or is that your default generic you French accent? stuffed oh. crust pizza recipe as Macron. Oh, maybe for the extra bit. Stuff it with anything that is lying around? Oh, that's very true, for actually, <laughs> rather than Macron. I always mix those two up. Um, so what is specific to to Britain the, in the inflation situation? Okay, so food inflation is worse here because it was already heading up because we decided to cut off the market from which 40% of our food came at just the right moment. So, I think so we covered that in previous episodes. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> seen so that's worse. Um, and, and I suspect we'll persist for longer. Um, Labour shortages. I mean... This morning, Liz Truss went on the Today programme and boasted that the UK has the lowest unemployment rates it's had since 1974. And I went back and looked at the economic data of 1974. Mm. It's a fucking shit show. <laughs> we were in the middle of one of the most profound uh, uh, recessions. We were called the poor man of Europe. It basically took a decade to recover from and led into the winter of discontent. All of that stuff you know, came off the back of the 72 to 74 recession. And you've got people boasting. And, and Boris Johnson during PMQs repeated this boast about 10 times, boasting that there's a labor supply shortage in the market when the governor of the Bank of England and other members of the Monetary Policy Committee were giving evidence to the Commons just on Tuesday saying the biggest threat on the horizon, the biggest thing that will prevent us from recovering as fast as the rest of Europe is this huge labour shortage that we have. And the next day, the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary are going around going, isn't it great We've got the lowest unemployment rate since the last time we were a fucking basket case. Is that oh, <laughs> terrific? Let's go back to 1974. Uh, Ross, finally, cost of living was the main reason for Tory losses in the local elections. Um, there are new stories of suffering every day. What is Rishi Sunak waiting for? I mean, presumably he at least understands the basic economics here. 
Mm. He's waiting for things to get a lot worse, basically. I mean, bear in mind the existential threat to Boris Johnson has now passed because he wasn't removed by his MPs after the Tories' crap performance mm. in the local elections. I thought he might be. I thought that some Tories still had some brain cells to rub together. I was wrong. <laughs> that means that since... The Conservatives are no longer imminently under threat and there are no big elections for a while, no tests of their popularity. The imperative now is to get through summer before being forced to, to give any handouts, basically. The energy crisis will be a lot worse in the autumn because the price cap will, for gas will almost certainly go up again and we will, of course, start needing more heating as it gets colder. So why act now when you will have to act later anyway? I think. Why act multiple times? Why when when you can hang on, um, and also they can't believe, agree between themselves how to do it. In any case, that's the other problem. That's the other impasse. Why act now is really the story of this government. <laughs> yeah, and the answer is always big dog. Big now. dog is not under immediate pressure, so big dog does not need to act. <laughs> Shut up and eat your noodles. <laughs> big dog doesn't care. Now it's time for an electronically delivered inquiry from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. <laughs> this week, it's a very serious question from Ross Schonfeld. Boris Johnson likes to nibble cheese when avoiding work, consequences or childcare responsibilities. What are the panel's procrastination pickings or focusing food? That's a little too much alliteration. For my mm. Our email filter should have like <laughs> removed the alliteration there. I felt a little awkward there because I also like eating bits of cheese from the fridge <laughs> and anything that I have in common with Boris Johnson is, is unnerving. It's very middle class eating bits of cheese because if you're, if you're poor, you have it grated and, you know, you can't just nibble grated cheese. It's oh, oh, you can. Is this a real thing? If you're oh, yeah, poor, exactly. you have it grated? <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah, completely, because it lasts longer and it's usually cheaper. Oh, I always thought it was I quite a posh thing to buy, like the luxury of getting someone else to grate your cheese. Up pops Lee Anderson. If people grated their own cheese, <laughs> they would save a bundle. Ian, apart I, from stuffed crust pizza that is left over from last night I mean, and you, hidden around the house. You, you joke, but <laughs> no, definitely eat quite a lot of uh, cold stuffed crust pizza. I've talked about this before, but it's 100% the uh, little mobile video games. And they're not good games, and they kind of can't be good games, because if they were good games, they, they demand that you think a bit too much and plan a bit too much. I'm talking like total trash on your phone that lasts for like two to three minutes. And they're all rigged. For instance? I mean, I'm currently playing a game called Beach Buggy Racing 2, which okay. is just, I mean, it's utter trash. Do you need to play Beach Buggy Racing 1? Yeah, you'll, you'll never on. understand the complex continuity between okay. these games unless you start at the very beginning, yeah. It's like a rip-off of Mario Kart, basically, and, and quite well done. But the, the main thing that they all rig your brain to, they kind of trick you. So you're constantly like, if I just do this, then I can get like another 100,000 coins. And if I get another 100,000 coins, I'll be able to go a little bit faster. And if I can go a little bit faster, then I can do this and I can get it there. And you're basically, it's complete, if you stop for a second and think, how much fun am I actually having right now? You would stop doing it in a second because it's not worth it. But that's not what the function of these games is. They give me two things. First thing is, like every, and I mean frequently, I'm talking like every half an hour or so of work, I just, I get to just do five to ten minutes on that thing and my brain is just off huh. and not thinking about the stuff. And secondly, when I'm doing the work, 
I have at least a little something that I can look forward to that isn't like lunch in three hours or dinner in eight hours. You know what I mean? It's like something is coming soon that will be fun and doesn't involve me, for instance, researching neoliberalism. So, yeah, it's basically mobile games. I play a mobile game about uh, neoliberalism. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still on Dig This. Do you remember I recommended Dig This to our listeners and loads of them were cursing me afterwards on Twitter because they got addicted. Um, And I'm now just completed the 5,000th level. Oh, my God. What it seems like an incredible (laughs) investment. (laughs) (laughs) Those games have these bastards. There's a little thing on them that you can find out how many hours you've played it for. Never click that fucking button. Never click it. Ros, these guys are wasting their lives. Um, (laughs) to, to, to To get back to good snacks. Snacks. What's your procrastination? Oh, God. Crisps. I love crisps so oh, much. I'm good, not, I'm not into biscuits. I can take or leave any kind of biscuit. They don't interest me at all, which is obviously better for my teeth. But crisps, I just adore. And I just have to control the crisp craving because it kicks in literally as soon as I finish my first coffee. It's like, oh, it's been an hour and a half since I had breakfast. I must eat crisps. Oh, it's wow. a nightmare. And I have to actually literally not have them in the house. Or, <laughs> uh, and, and then I have try and avoid it by eating a carrot because I think it's crunchy. It's going to occupy my jaws. <laughs> Maybe I'll be distracted. I don't really enjoy the, ta- the flavour of carrots that crisps, much. You could have a carrot. <laughs> no, no, you know, I'm, I, actually, yeah. I actually don't. I want to hear the French thing anymore. (laughs) I've decided it's done. A little bit went a long way. Le chic, mon amour. I I have bad news for you, Roz. Crisps are actually the worst thing for your teeth imaginable. Because apparently they get in between your teeth and Mm. the starch turns to sugar. Yeah. In, in and, between and when your teeth. Thai and sweet, they're like the worst When they're Thai sweet chili, which are the best kind of crisps, then it's even worse, I imagine, as well. Um, yeah. at, at the risk of being worthy, I have discovered, it started during lockdown, is I had to keep going for walks in order to think because I couldn't concentrate what with all the people in the house. And uh, now I found from my osteopath that you're meant to constantly be getting up and walking around mm-hmm. not saying you're desperate too long. And so actually walks, but they're not really procrastination. It's just something else to do. Mm. Like, it doesn't necessarily turn my brain off. In fact, I did quite a lot of sort of work thinking on walks. But just like the physical motion. And then when you've got that pacer. So the pacer is like Beach Buggy Adventure 2. Mm-hmm. But for good rather than evil. Because <laughs> it does give you the sense of rewards, you know. And you just, oh, you've done enough steps or whatever. So yeah, I, I good to get out. I get up off the desk to have a tiny snack of something. And I will end up basically cooking the most complicated thing I've ever made for about three hours in the kitchen. To avoid work. Yeah, I will I will go, I'll just have a little snack and then end up making dim sum from scratch. And four hours later, I'm like, how did I end up here in this delicious but unproductive place? Next this week, Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has announced that she's planning to suspend parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol the agreement for post-Brexit trade in Ireland, which, eagle-eared listeners will remember, her government signed up to back in 2019 and looked pleased as punch about it. At the time, Boris Johnson said it was a good arrangement with the minimum possible bureaucratic consequences. But was it? Ian, um, Article 16, I don't need to tell you this, but just for the listeners' sake, (sighs) states that if the application of the protocol leads to serious economic, societal or environmental difficulties, the Union or the United Kingdom may unilaterally take appropriate safeguard measures. So what is the justification? Well, I'm not sure yet that they're going to trigger Article 16. They don't talk about it quite as much as they used to. No. 
Um, they're now talking more in a kind of impressionistic terms about, you know, unilateral yeah. amendments to but are they kind, with someone else. Are they kind is, of like rolling the pitch? We, we don't know. Well, you see, the thing is, Article 16 isn't quite as apocalyptic as we say it is. Um, in that you can't really, if you were to do it, so you trigger it and then you go, look, we had these problems and now we've addressed them. And then the EU would go, right, well, we're addressing these things and these ways to counter your things. You could do that bit. But it's political. It's not part of the trade agreement. So you couldn't do retaliatory tariffs mm. through the Article 16 process. <clears throat> However, if you were to illegitimately trigger Article 16, for instance, like saying something really fucking stupid, like we don't think the European Court of Justice should be involved in this, then <laughs> they would be able to launch a legal dispute against you. And that would take place in the form of the withdrawal agreement, the whole thing, not just the protocol. And then, yeah, all the fucking guns come out once you're there because then you are in the world of retaliatory tariffs and all this stuff. So I suspect that all this mercurial, why aren't they using those words, why are they? I think that's to do with these kinds of calculations, but I'm not sure. So what could the EU do? Because it obviously doesn't want a trade war. Uh, the nuclear option... I read, was scrapping the whole agreement and throwing us back to a no-deal Brexit, which is the sort of thing where you just wake, wake up bolt upright, screaming and sweating. Mm -hmm. um, but more realistically, what kind of measures... Well, retaliatory take? tariffs, yeah. Because, I mean, the thing is, look, there is, there is an extent, which we don't talk about very much, in which um, the British have a sort of the advantage of immorality. Which is the advantage. It is a key advantage, like often in, it's really key. But let's say you just sort of start tearing shit up and just putting it up, right? Okay, so then the EU, what, what can the EU do, right? Where is the end of its territory? Mm. Down the middle of Ireland, right? So what do you do? Do you, do you put the checks there? Do you start imposing? Because that's the only way to control the territory that you have. Now, the EU doesn't want to do that for obvious reasons and probably won't do it. But if, you, if you're one actor who will just do whatever the fuck you like and one actor that still has moral standards, the actor that still has moral standards is at a significant disadvantage because it doesn't know how to respond to that scenario. So, yeah, it will have all the tariffs and it will, and it will and I think in the end, they've been pretty clear they would launch them if indeed any of this actually fucking happens, which I don't think it will. Now, I don't like it when people don't trust Liz Truss. <laughs> um, but you seem a little sceptical here. They're talking about legislation, introducing a bill. So you're saying that they will, this bill will not happen or that it will be very limited? Or like what, what's it meant to be doing? Okay, let me put it this way. It's been months and months and months since David Frost first did a speech saying that Britain would consider triggering Article 16, right? Now, before that, there yeah. was months and months and months of them briefing journalists and talking all mm. sneaky about it. And then there was a speech. And suddenly we were like, fuck me, he's going to trigger the thing. And then it goes away for a bit. And then it comes up and then it goes away for a bit. Now, this time we're told, no, this time we're going to fucking do it. But not. But what, when are we told that? We're told on the day of the Queen's speech. But we're like... Well, you probably should have put the legislation in the Queen's... I mean, you're literally doing the Queen's speech today. So why don't you put the fucking bill in it? Right? But it's like, oh, we're still working on that. And now, you know, then it's like, but next week, we're fucking doing it next week. Now it is next week. It, there's still no bill. They're like, well, we're going we're gonna to write a bill now. So that would take weeks. Then you've got to pass the bill through Parliament. Then you're going to have the Lords, and the Lords are going to fucking get the knives out, and they're going to stab the shit out of that thing in the back of an alleyway, okay? And that's going to take a long time for it to go through Parliament. And then after that, you would then have the powers, mm -hmm. and then you could go do the stuff that we're talking about. Now, that is, that is a process of months, right? So suddenly, you're like, okay, so now what, we, what, what is really happening here? We are back in the world that us guys were in when we were sat in another very hot, tiny studio with no windows about no deal. It's this constant attempt to just keep you on the edge of your seat, this, this sort of 
this impending emergency that's about to happen mm. that does all sorts of domestic useful right. things for you, but I am not convinced that they're ever going to actually do it. So Alex, uh, Raphael Baer, our future seaside guest, uh, wrote in The Guardian that this was down to the sadomasochistic compulsion to be oppressed by foreigners for fear of taking responsibility for the consequences <laughs> of liberation. That's very good. Very good psychoanalysis very good, yeah. of the Brexit thing. But, I mean, I find the protocol rather sort of dry and knotty yeah. topic. Well, it is. Do you think that Leave voters will be fired up by this? Is this an effective threat? in the? Because no deal was just like walking out on an argument. Like, everybody understands that, right? Yeah. Um, this is not so clear, you know, because you, you, it's always specific and limited and it's this and it's that. Do you think it does have political efficacy outside of essentially the Tory backbenches, the, the ERG? Is, is, uh, is Joe Lever in the Red Wall, like, really into this? I think it has limited, limited utility. Um, and I think it reveals how desperate the government is right now mm. because it's firmly targeted at sort of securing their very core, their very base, which reveals a kind of insecurity about even their very core, mm -hmm. their very base voter. And so I think that's quite interesting. There was a poll in the Express yesterday, I mean, one of those Express polls, and and it was like ninety 94% of their readers are profoundly unhappy about the Brexit they're getting. And I just think, I mean, obviously, if you drill into that, um, you will find that every one of the 94% think yeah. it was expecting a different Brexit. It's, it's the shit but, sandwich you ordered not but, to your liking, yeah, sir. But, but the point is that it won't actually matter, does, will it? Because um, Johnson's platform was I'm going to get this done. And I think if we, if we end up with another major electoral event, like a general election, say, or a couple of by-elections which are coming up, and their, and their platform still is, no, no, this time really we will get it done. Mm -hmm. I think that's really fucking weak. It's like one of those pathetic bands in which everyone has changed but the drummer and they're still trying to do big gigs where they play their hits from 30 years ago, and it just doesn't work. Um, Roz, in Northern Ireland itself, the DUP is delaying the opening of Stormont while the protocol is in place, and Sinn Féin claim they are holding Northern Ireland to ransom. Is Liz Truss fully respectful of the political consequences of this kind of uh, <laughs> trade war sabre-rattling? No, no, no. Of course, of course she's not. But I mean, That was a trick question. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a disaster for Northern Ireland because it can't, it can't scrutinise legislation, it can't pass it, they can't even take any budget decisions while the Northern Ireland Assembly is... In, is suspended, and that's really bad for a country. You can't you can't move forward when you do that. And you, what's worse is that we've been here before, and we know how bad it is. There was a story today about the uh, NHS and what it means for that. They can't they can't decide how to allocate resources to hospitals. They can't deal with the aftermath of the pandemic. All that kind of stuff is totally on hold. There's a 24 week deadline to form the assembly, and basically the DUP is counting on being able to, to to let the clock run down and to get what it wants and to ensure that the government does does more to 
get rid of the Northern Ireland Protocol. That's its aim, basically. And it's it's made it's said that it's very happy that Liz Truss has, says there's going to be this legislation um, to uh, breach the protocol, but it wants more before it will actually move. The problem for them is that if they get to 24 weeks, then there are elections and the Sinn Féin would almost certainly do very well in mm. those elections mm. because the DUP would be seen to have mm. held the Assembly to ransom, basically. I mean, the timing is perhaps is perhaps deceptive here. Would all, would this be happening if Sinn Féin hadn't outperformed the DUP at the elections? Like, Is there any connection to what's happening domestically in Northern Ireland and the timing of this kind of protocol bullshit. Yes, I think there is. I mean, it's happening despite the fact that Sinn Féin outperformed the DUP at elections because the DUP got 25 seats and Sinn Féin got 27 seats. And in any reasonable world, you'd think that therefore the government would take a softer line on the Northern Ireland Protocol because it's what Sinn Féin want. But naturally, that's not what it's doing. And I think this is partly a performative act by the UK to prove that it can still call the shots in Northern Ireland despite Sinn Féin's success. And of course, it's also determination by the DUP to prove that they're still calling the shots on Brexit. It's a bit 2019 this week, isn't it? Mm. I just feel like we're getting sucked back to 1974. DUP. No deal. It's very May It's like it's very much like, oh, we've seen this movie before. Didn't yeah. like it. Because that's but that's Alex's point, right? That because that's what really worked out really well for them. The whole yeah. 2019 bit, right? So they that's what the, their whole agenda right yeah, now is back to 2019. Exactly. Um someone wrote, I think it might have been Raphael Bear actually again a couple of weeks ago. Let's not be too nice to him. We have the, to this podcast is sponsored by <laughs> Raphael. <laughs> but someone wrote that the problem with saying we need to move on from this is that the very next question people ask you is move on to what? What's your big idea? Right. What's your legislative program what are you planning to do and they have nothing but it's a bit like going like when was i happiest you almost get the feeling like where's boris Johnson? <laughs> when was i happiest and it's like ah when i won that big election and thrashed labor with get brexit done so i'm going to do that again but you know what there's certain things that i can look back on and go not when i was happiest but there are certain things i can look back on and go i was very happy then i wouldn't want to replicate them you can't go back and so there is this sort of vaguely pathetic air mm. of just somebody who's just like Everything's very difficult right now. Yeah. But what if I just went back yeah. and did it again? Uh, finally, uh, back to Westminster. Starmer has been avoiding anything that makes him sound like the Remainer that he is. <laughs> um, if this bill is indeed written and is indeed presented to the Commons, is this something that Labour can vote against without being painted as anti-Brexit? How much fuckery easily. can Labour run away from going, I, oh, I don't want to criticise I it. think easily. They're never going to make it front and centre. but. If if Starmer has tried to put a stamp on his spell in charge of the party, it is that we are serious people and we play by the rules and we respect the, the legal order. Yeah. And so on that basis, it fits right in with Partygate, with dodgy donations. It It mm. is the same thing. It's a group of people who think their actions have no consequences and the rules don't apply to them. And in this case, nobody's going to find out that Starmer try to unravel a protocol in Durham. <laughs> so it's just, it's a safe line of attack. You try to undermine the Geneva Convention. <laughs> James Telepole's son has the pictures. Before we go, let's take a look at some stories that deserve your attention in Under the Radar. Roz. Uh, my Under the Radar 
today is a tweet by Dominic Cummings, and bear with me, because he does actually tweet some very interesting stuff yes, occasionally. Does, yeah, it's fascinating. And he tweeted today, you can only understand the working from home farce if you understand this is an issue the trolley gets... He, trolley, he means Boris Johnson, because he swerves about from one side to the other. Still trying to make trolley happen. Yeah. Gets direct repeated <laughs> calls from newspaper proprietors, not just editors. It's killing us. Tell us what you want in return, but you must get commuters back since April 2020. And it's a fascinating insight. I don't think anybody has made it before. That the reason that so many papers are so into getting yeah. people back into the office is because when people go out of the house and go to work, they buy papers. And it suddenly you know, he's cut through, and it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating insight. And if only. If only we read more about the motivations of newspaper owners, and of course we won't, but if only we did, we might understand a lot more about Britain today. Well, I did wonder why the Daily Mail front page today, I think, was claiming that the reason the Bank of England couldn't tackle inflation was um, that too many people were working from home. Oh, and I like the idea, and as somebody suggested, what well, then that meant that they couldn't get to the big stop inflation button that's in the <laughs> office. <laughs> And they couldn't go out and buy their Daily Mail, as I'm sure all the Treasury staff are doing. Not. That is amazing. Well done, Dom. Uh, Ian, what about you? Uh, well, to continue with the whole let's party like it's 2019, uh, Conference on the Future of Europe has just reported. This is kind of an amazing initiative. I know it sounds boring as fuck, but it isn't. It's really interesting. It's essentially a citizens' assembly that they held sort of throughout Europe to come up with ideas for reforming it. So all different ages, different genders, different income levels, different educational levels, different countries. I haven't seen a citizens' assembly plan done on this scale before. I mean, we had really good success in Ireland with it. You know, this for a while, this has just been this thing with progressives that is just like, oh, maybe this is the answer, citizens' assemblies. And I don't think it is the great answer, but they do seem to keep on producing interesting results. And having it within an institutional structure has proved extremely interesting. One of the things that they've asked for is, I mean, they asked for like over 200 things, but one of the things is... Uh, that the council could make foreign policy decisions uh, without needing support from every single member state. Mm. Now, that basically would turn the EU into a major foreign policy power. Um, yeah. It would also involve opening up the treaties and because to redo them and no one wants to open up the treaties because the last time they opened up the treaties, all these fucking horrible gremlins came out and voted against them in referendum. Um, and now they're back. However, so this really interesting dynamic has built up. They said that. Then you've got the Nordic countries and the Eastern European countries were like, no, fuck no, leave those treaties alone. We're not having any of that. But lots of, I mean, this morning was reported, lots of really quite weighty countries, you know, we're talking France, Spain, sort of the main sort of states in Europe were saying, no, we might, we could see our way towards doing that. And that, to me, when you combine it with a speech by Emmanuel Macron <coughs> recently on sort of multi-speed Europe, the kind of thing that could potentially be something that... that um, Everybody can get back into God, he's going to do the accent again. You mustn't. <laughs> you mustn't. <laughs> <laughs> that's not fair. That's not cool. That's, that's not cool. C'est une vitesse. Yeah, I know that actually sounds pretty, pretty fucking good. Yeah. Um, so I just think that's a very interesting scenario we've suddenly found ourselves in. I'm not saying any of this will happen. It'll be slow and it'll be... Yeah. However, those big, big questions about what Europe is, how it functions, the democratic deficit, the one-size-fits-all, the weakness on foreign policy, suddenly not only are the questions being asked, but the answers are coming. And I think they seem to me at the moment to be the right kind of answers. So, of course, no one fucking talks about it in this country, but actually when you look at what's going on in Europe, it's pretty interesting. Uh, well, I've been reading about a bad treaty 
this week. Uh, a new study concludes that in order to keep global heating to 1.5 degrees, it's not enough to halt all new fossil fuel development. Half of existing sites will need to be shut down. Um, this sort of gloomier analysis is based on scepticism about the um, efficiency of carbon reduction technology, which is kind of a lot of hope has been been placed in. Anyway, if there were the political will to do this, the EU would have to withdraw from the Energy Charter Treaty, uh, an amazing deal which allows mm. fuel companies to sue governments over lost profits, mm. which seems like an extremely bad thing to allow energy companies to do mm-hmm. when you're trying to get them to um, to lose profits <laughs> um, by not making the planet burn. Um, so it just it seemed to be like another insight into the some of the like the legal hurdles or the legal kind of bind. Um, the governments have got themselves into and the absurd power of fossil fuel companies. Alex? So my, I mean, it's embarrassing because it's also about working from home. So, and, you know, Ros and I are like the people who turn up in the same dress. But um, but mine is a different um, slant on it. So the Irish government uh, has published today a proper cost-benefit analysis of working from home. And they found that it basically saves costs to employees, employers and the state because it has massive environmental benefits. Mm. Um, um, So I I just found that in such sharp contrast with a UK government who pretends it's the sort of tech-savvy maverick Mm. that's going to take the world by storm and um, be the next leader in AI and robotics but is actually this crusty man in tails and a top hat <laughs> that goes around leaving handwritten notes on people's desks because he feels his fiefdom is somehow diminished by all of them not being there. Um, and I just thought, what a wonderful thing to do, to look at it rationally and say, well, there are some sectors where it's going to be a big thing and it will cut our emissions because fewer people will be using their car to commute. So um, why not have a go at a sort of mixed model? I would advise people to look that up and have a look at the findings of that research. They're really fascinating. And that's the show. Thank you to Alex. Thank you. Avec plaisir. Roz. Come on. De rien. For fuck's Uh, sake. That's me. And Ian. Yeah, cheers. Yeah, cheers, thanks. True Brit. (laughs) Stay tuned for our extra bit exclusively for Patreons. You'll hear a petty preview after our theme song, (laughs) Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to our latest backers. We still have a huge backlog of names, so if you haven't heard your name yet, please be patient. We will get to you eventually. Huge thanks from all of us to Oliver Johnson, Robert Robinson, Mark, Matthew Amis, Kweziot Kutu, Andrew, Susie Madge, Rue and Daniel Smith. And welcome aboard and best wishes from me to Kevin McComb, Stephen McConnell, Easy Old Winkle, thanks for that, Gordon Kemp, Paul Seddon, Rhea Sheldon, Martin Durban, Eric Power, Coletta Flaherty and Gillian Turner. And for me, it's hello and many thanks to David Squire, Paul McGovern, Alex Rogers, Simon Andrews, Natasha Durkin, Richard, Arthur Case, David Marriott, Sean and Robert Lindsay. And finally, thanks for me to Zoe Blakemore, Sarah Natasha, Steve Jones, Jack Ringland, Simon, Olivia Vidal, Chris Moore, Chris Evans, Jacko Harless and Will. 
see you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt, Alex Andreu and Ros Taylor. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn, the producers of Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronevich, group editor is Andrew Harrison, lead producer Jacob Jarvis, and Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Oh God, What Now extra bit exclusively for Patreon backers. An employment tribunal at the British Bung Company, the real BBC, found that a man is more at risk of hair loss and therefore commenting on it is a form of sex-related harassment. The claimant said he was referred to as a stupid old bald before he was fired. Uh, bald was the real bone of contention there. <laughs> was, it, was it implicit in his legal defence that he accepted all the other terms? <laughs> I mean, he did say that that was the particular word that bothered him, but I don't think, it, I don't think he, he had to fully legally endorse. It's not on the record, the other How thing. How dare you call me bold after that? Uh, Ian, we are unignorably... Why are you having to come to me first on this subject? (laughs) And that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening and see you next week.